You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, alongside, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, Ben Folks. Ben, it looks like maybe you've made a lifestyle change, a full-time, coffee-oriented lifestyle change, because I can tell just by looking that today you went to one of Missoula's finest bakery establishments to get your Joe and what appears to be some kind of blondie brownie. That's right. It's a blondie brownie. Stop stop staring. Have a piece. No, it, that's that's okay. I'm I'm all taken care of over here. Did uh did something happen? Did you experience did you hit rock bottom or something and you had to go away from the gas station? Well, it's partly that because the last few times I've been to the gas station to get the coffee there, it is just awful. And uh you know, my love of seeing what the neighborhood scamps up here on the north side are up to Kind of outweighed by my love of actual decent coffee, um, but mostly it was because today I actually had a little extra time on my hands, finished my work early. Uh, you know, why not go get a blondie brownie and a decent cup of coffee? Be honest, is it because I mocked you for being tight-fisted twice in a row, two weeks in a row? Well, this was actually not that expensive, so, you know. I, I, well, yeah, this, it's amazing when you get out there and stretch your legs, see what's out there. Sometimes <laughs> you can find a bargain. Cost me roughly the same as it does when I buy a coffee for me and like a double stuffed Oreo for you, which you are then ungrateful of. Because I didn't ask for it, I think is the uh, is the answer to that question. I'm just saying, a gentleman uh, responds with the appropriate amount of gratitude to a double stuffed Oreo. I never, sir. Said, I never said I was a gentleman, sir. Ben, uh, the music for this week's podcast comes to us from listener Wesley Stevenson, a.k.a. Maustro. And get this, this is new for us. We've never done this before. He is a video game audio designer based out of Virginia Beach. Uh, he sent us three tracks that didn't end up getting used on some uh, video games. Actually, two tracks that didn't end up getting used on some video games that he designed. And one track that he made up just for the co-main event podcast. Oh, nice. So I we're so going to sound like bad dudes up in here. Oh, nice. I mean, everyone knows that we're bad dudes. Yeah. I'm saying we're going to sound like bad dudes the video game. It's going to feel like we're strutting around on streets of rage, huh? I like it. You can search for Maustro or Maustro Audio on SoundCloud or YouTube, and we'll try to put some links up uh, to those pages when this episode gets gets posted. But definitely a different feel than we've ever had before here on the show, musically. Did you say we're breaking new ground? Breaking new ground, as okay. usual. Three rounds for the co-main event podcast this week. In round number one, almost by default, RoarMac underscore Gorilla will be your number one welterweight contender come spring. And we're all just screaming and pounding our chests with excitement over it before slipping back into a weird, icy, hollow-eyed stoicism. And in round number two, it's the Rick Story Story featuring Rick Story with a special guest by some appearance by some Icelandic dude nobody remembers anymore. And in round number three, Kung Lee tested positive for elevated levels of human growth hormone last week, but what this round presupposes is maybe he didn't? Hmm. All that plus are you fucking kidding me, Master Tweet Theater, and just saying stuff, but right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Mike Morgan. He writes, the UFC ran hype videos prior to Fight Night 53 detailing the, quote, MMA explosion in Sweden due in part to the popularity of Alexander Gustafsson. The Swedes could have used the lusty one on Saturday because the rest of his crew got murked. First, Tor Troning. Tor Trang. Tor Trang. Yeah. Pretty close. Nailed it. Uh, lost via unanimous, unanimous decision on the undercard. Then a hot prospect, Nicholas Backstrom, got knocked cold and then mouthed off on the microphone during his opponent's post-fight interview. That's fucked up, man. That that would mean that was just fun. That was just good. <laughs> that good was fun. fun. Uh, and then the bricklayer, Alir Latifi, then had his sternum kicked and Akira Corasanti was stopped in the first by Max Holloway. 0-4 for the Swedes, but they still had fun, right? Uh, so yeah, and not a... Home field advantage to rival, say, the first few Brazilian cards. Well, it's not Swedes. like all the Swedish dudes lost. I mean, he mentioned the ones who lost, but Magnus Seidenblad, uh, he won a decision in his fight and was actually, you know, pretty gritty in, in winning that decision. He got, got kicked right, in, right up his 
face uh, at one point there, and it looked pretty bad for him. Uh, also, Nico Masoki won. So, I mean, it's not it's not a completely dire situation for the Swedes over there. Although, it did seem like, judging by Alexander Gustafsson's response, he he felt like maybe his his Swedish boys were taking a little bit too much shit from the local fans. You see this? No, oh, I, I did not get a chance to either watch it or read it, but I understand that Lusty Gusty felt the need to respond to... The fans over there, yeah, in the form of a video. I know he likes to film videos. Uh, I mean, I read it. I read it as a statement on MMA Junkie. Uh, I don't think it was a video, but maybe it was. But uh, he released a statement. Yeah, he released a statement about it, and the statement was basically. And here's one of those things where I feel like there's two ways you can take it, right? Because the statement was basically saying, like, "Hey, for one thing, fighting is really hard, um, and there's a lot of really hard stuff about it, like the training, the weight cut, all the pressure, and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, hey, sometimes you go out there and everything is great, and sometimes it's not, and that's the that's the breaks basically, um, which is totally fair. Like those are all fair points to make. At the same time, I feel like you get this thing sometimes with fighters where they feel like like the fans owe them some kind of like just blanket support. Like, you know, and that that's why you see the thing when there's like, oh, I'm all, I'm riding for my real fans and not these haters. Hashtag fuck the haters. Hashtag haters <laughs> wow. going hate. Am I doing this podcast with Rampage Jackson? Like, what's <laughs> happening here? But, you know, I mean, Rampage Jackson is a good example of that kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't feel like it usually works the same uh, most of the time for MMA people. It's not like people might have their favorite fighters or something like that, or they might root for fighters from their country, uh, all the other things being equal, but it doesn't mean they necessarily have to ride or die with you. They can point out when things didn't go that well for you. Uh, it's not like, you know, if you're a Kansas city chiefs fan, then you got to live or die with the Kansas city chiefs. And even when it is like that, you know, fans love to complain about their teams sucking. Like that's part of what it is to be a sports fan. Right. right. I feel like sometimes fighters maybe take that uh, a little uh, to heart, a little too much. And you can see why they would. And maybe even more, a little bit more to the point, didn't UFC middleweight champion Chris Weidman uh, sound off on kind of a similar topic this week, kind of asking why American fans don't just blanket support all American fight? And the answer to this question may be that, that, you know, the lion's share of fighters are, in fact, American. Yeah, and we'll give this, you a USA chant. If you're, if oh, you're, every time. Man, <laughs> if, if you're fighting a dude from Alaska, you're probably going to get a USA <laughs> chant going. Well, another thing, I, I thought that this question was going to go in a different way at first. Because uh, talking about the, the Swedes being super pumped up uh, for the UFC to come back there, I think it's worth noting the first time the UFC went to Stockholm uh, it was two years ago in, in the spring of 2012. Uh, I was at that one and it was a crazy environment. Um, there were a lot more people there the first time. This one, you see them show up and you see a lot of empty seats for the prelims. The other one, and by the time the first fight, first fight started, there was hardly an empty seat in the house. They were going crazy. It was like Brazil. And we, we're, I think we're seeing the same thing there that we're seeing in other places. And Brazil's one of them, you know, Canada's one of them where there's a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm for it right away. The UFC thinks, okay, this is a, a killer market for us. Uh, and then comes back later with a product that's maybe not quite as good as the last one it came there with. Simonoff versus Marcin Bandel. Yes. That kind of go. stuff. Is that what you're talking you about? You know what I'm talking about. Neither of those guys have Wikipedia pages, by the way. Neither <laughs> does Zubera Tuku, Tukugov. Tukugov. Nailed it. Uh, but I mean, I think that, uh, it's understandable that, like, we're, you see a little bit of a cooling there where those fans, you know, they're fight fans. They're just like anybody else. They're, they're not gonna just show up just because you hoist up the flag in their home country every time. They're gonna, uh, exercise a little buyer's discretion there and look at your card and decide whether they think it's worth shelling out the money to come see this one or watch it on TV at home. Uh, and I think that, you know, all that stuff, it's kind of a sign to the UFC that maybe, you know, you, you need to not just take for granted that because you're in Sweden, all the Swedes are going to show up with the same enthusiasm regardless of what the fight card is. The next question this week comes from us from Patrick Wyman. He writes, Max Holloway's win over Akira Khorasani was the, his second in two months and fourth of the year. It got me thinking about always ready to roll action fighters like him and Donald Cerrone. As much as we've all rightfully criticized the many, many negative effects of oversaturation. Just did it just now. Isn't one of the totally unintended benefits that durable fighters who don't cut much weight are getting drastically more opportunities to perform and make money. If this is indeed the case, do you think that this will change the meta game of how fighters think about and prepare for fights or create a niche class of fighters who can adapt to this new norm? 
Uh, and you know, I mean, this is probably a, a fairly decent point for, for fighters like Max Holloway and Donald Cerrone who, uh, you know, are durable and appear to not care about their brain health at all. Uh, and so that they don't mind going out there and fighting once every couple of months. Uh, Donald Cerrone is going to get probably to five fights this year if they squeeze one more in before the end of the year. Which you know he's going to desperately try to do. He's definitely going to try to do that. And, and I think that Patrick Wyman makes a good point. It definitely represents an opportunity for guys to go out there and, and make more money. We've already heard Donald Cerrone talk about how his, uh, I guess, lake-based lifestyle uh, <laughs> sometimes outseeds or exceeds his salary. Uh, and so I think all of that is true, and that's a good point, and, and it does sort of represent the new norm. At the same time, though, I keep coming back to the idea that that's actually kind of a sad commentary all over again, isn't it? Not to get sidetracked into a, uh, you know, a discussion about fighter pay that, that would sound like ones we've probably had before on this show. But like, man, if you, if, if you have to go out and fight six times a year just to be able to like, uh, fund your wakeboarding habit, like, I don't know, man. I don't know that that puts the best foot forward for this still emerging sport that's trying to get its feet on the ground as part of the mainstream sporting landscape in, in America. Well, I mean, some of that depends on how the fighter chooses to spend his money. I mean, sure. Cerrone yeah. seems like yeah. he's eagerly burning through some of his. Hey, and in fairness, let's also say Donald Cerrone built a gym in his backyard. So he's not spending it all on, on jet boats right. and horseback rides. But he is spending uh, a good portion some of it. That. Some of it, yeah. He's, well, you know, and that's – and. It's not like all fighters are, are the same in that regard. I was talking uh, just last week to a, a manager who shall remain nameless, and he was talking about his concerns about uh, various fighters he had and what their financial situation was going to be later on in life. Uh, because he was saying he was looking at some of the guys, and he was talking about dudes he managed who had been in the UFC a while uh, and who some of whom who've made you know millions, uh, like you know not. We're not talking Shaquille O'Neal money, but, you know, they've been in the UFC for a few years and maybe you total up all their money and they got four or five million dollars that they should have somewhere and they don't have any of it right now. Right. Uh, and that then some of them, you know, they seem to manage their money well and others, it doesn't matter how much they make, they're going to find a way to spend. So maybe it is a good thing to, for guys who, if, I mean, I guess if you know that that's how you are, then, hey, get in there as much as you can and make as much money as you can because, as we said over and over again, you're not in this for long. You can't really do this for long. You have to make the money that you can. I just wonder, like, it seems like the different schools of thought, some guys are like, okay, I need to make money, and the way I will make money is by volume. I will just get in there as much as possible, try to win some bonuses along the way, uh, and just do a lot. And hopefully doing a lot equals making a lot. And then the other guys who are like, I'm going to try and sculpt my career a little more because I feel like the only way you make serious you know, fuck you money is if you become a champion. Uh, and so then I got to take a little more care with who I fight and when and make sure I'm ready and make sure I'm climbing up the ladder and considering my ranking spot. And Cerrone's a guy who will tell you straight up that he does not care what the rankings say. He'll fight the last guy in the division or the first guy and really doesn't seem to make any, any difference either way to him. So, I mean, I think some of it is a different philosophy. I mean, as far as our fighters going to start taking this into account, and, and guiding their careers based on these examples, I can see how that'll work for some guys. Uh, other guys, I feel like, you know, your goal should be, right, to get in there and be the champion. And maybe fighting five times a year isn't the best thing for that. Right. I mean, I think you just are alluding to it right there, but uh, it represents a, uh, a significant opportunity for these guys to come out and make more money than they ever have. It also represents significant risk, right? Right. And in terms of, like, making more money, it's definitely worked out for Donald Cerrone. Like, previous to his uh, win over Eddie Alvarez at UFC 178, he'd won one, two, three, four. Uh, end of the night performance based bonuses in a row, uh, which, you know, at, add at least like a third or, or an extra 50% to his take home money. But uh, some of that is luck. I mean, for one thing, like, I mean, you can go out there and perform really well and hope you get a bonus, but maybe somebody else does better and they have a higher position on the card or a bigger name and they get the bonus. But also, you can go out there and whip somebody's ass in a yes. one sided fight and still break your hand. And the next thing you know, you know, you're, you're not really there and, and, you, you can't get in there four more times the rest of the year. Like that's right. And it is. Yeah, you're right. It is luck for, for, uh, in some instances, we talked about Kat Zingano and Amanda Nunez kind of getting overlooked in their, in their fight. Like they could have had a performance of the night and didn't end up winning one. Uh, but I, I just to circle back to my original point though, it also represents tremendous risk, especially for a guy who fights in the UFC lightweight division, like Donald Cerrone. Like we, I've, I'm pretty sure we've had this conversation before, but like, you know, the possibility exists that Donald Cerrone could, you know, he's fought his way into title contention this last year. Uh, it's, 
and it's possible that he might fight his way right out of it before uh, the the championship carousel finally has a spot for him. Because that's it's still kind of what happened to him before. Yeah, yeah, it's still going to be a, a few couple more months before Anthony Pettis even fights Gilbert Melendez, and then you know the, whoever's the number one contender at that point uh, is probably going to have to wait. You know, barring any kind of. Uh, 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 you know, setback, which is kind of a big possibility in this sport, but it would have to wait a few more months. So oh, on by Donald Cerrone's calendar, he's probably going to fight three more times before uh, <laughs> he could fight for the title. So, and, and, you know, all it takes is one loss to miles jury or Michael Johnson. And all of a sudden, you know, you're not, you're not number two or three or four in the world anymore. And even though you don't care about rankings, like uh, you might make the case that, that you fought your way out of a chance to make a lot of money. Yeah. You might very well make that case. Uh, what are we doing here? Last question this week comes from Kent Carter. He writes, so Halifax had a pretty big stinker of a card on Saturday night. Before that, the UFC pulled the John Jones Cormier card from Toronto. Winnipeg was treated to a main event with no title implications, starring Rashad Evans and Dan Henderson. And Dana White still hasn't, quote unquote, made it up to the Calgary fans for the UFC's first disastrous uh, format into Alberta. I think he means 4A, but... You know, maybe it means something different. That, that's 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 very very possible. What gives is Canada no longer a priority? Discuss the lack of love for the true North, strong and free. Uh, so I mean, it's pretty clear what's going on here, right? Canada is the longtime girlfriend of the UFC and or uh, the wife of the UFC, and it seems Wait, like wasn't, wouldn't Vegas be the wife? Canada is a little girlfriend. All right. Well, now you're getting way more complex and than I was planning. Wow, is the sexy mistress. <laughs> I was planning on, you're getting too more complex than I was planning on going here. But like the UFC for a long time married to Canada as its primary international market. Let's say that. And uh, now there's a lot of other sexy little markets out there <laughs> that are drawn the UFC's eye. Brazil, the fictional country of Ireland. Uh, you know, Macau. Macau and, uh, yeah, the UFC is certainly spreading the wealth around a little bit more than it, than it had been. And I actually hadn't thought about it this way until Kent Carter sent us this email, but it kind of seems like maybe the fans who are getting screwed the most by international expansion are the Canadian fans. Do you think? Yeah, that's actually a fairly good point. And I mean, some of that though has to be attributed to, uh, the, the loss of GSP, right? I mean, I feel like, in the last few years, uh, going to cover uh, UFC events, especially when I was on that beat more and, and actually co covering the live events more, I feel like I went to Canada so damn much uh, because of George St. Pierre. I mean, I feel like I can just I can tell you where all the free Wi-Fi spots are in downtown Montreal. Uh, so I think that that's that's got to be part of it. But I also think that you know it's like the UFC just can't be everywhere at one time, right? And so oh, don't tell them that, <laughs> you know, but, and it's like, they're still trying to do the thing of like, okay, where haven't we been? Okay. Nova Scotia. Like we'll go to Halifax here and do a, a card. But again, it seems like the same kind of thing we were talking about with Sweden, where you're kind of relying on just their passion for MMA in general and their passion just for the product and the brand name of the UFC. You throw a Canadian dude there in the main event, uh, you know, you let Mitch Gagnon uh, go out there and do his thing, that kind of stuff. And sure, they'll all come and, and, and show up and throw money at you. Uh, and, you know, just like we were said before with the Brazilian fans, like where all those cards were packed with just Brazilian fighters. And they were like, yeah, that's cool and all. But where's John Jones? Like, we want to see these guys, too. Um, I mean, yeah, it just seems like maybe that's just how it's going to be going forward, that everybody, no matter who you are, where you live, if you want to be guaranteed to see a big UFC event, you know, with big time superstars, you're probably going to have to book a trip to Vegas for one of those, uh, those slots that's usually marked on the calendar, say Super Bowl weekend or around New Year's Eve, whatever, what have you. I mean, it doesn't seem like you can just count on the UFC bringing its best stuff to you anymore. Well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. Hell, man, while you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning uh, to catch you up on all the news and notes that uh, we, we miss when we only do the podcast every Monday. Um, it's a good time. We, we all like it. We do. Everyone just sits around enjoying their breakfast and having a hearty chuckle. Just yucking it up. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Ben. The 25-year-old phenom Rory McDonald went out on Saturday night in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Pretty much beat the bricks off Tarek Safadine for his third straight win in the UFC. Advanced his promotional record to 9-2, and 18-2 overall. And as I wrote at Bleacher Report the, you know, the next day, the phrase that I saw being thrown around a lot about Rory McDonald in the wake of this win was, it'll be hard to deny him a title shot after this. And I thought that that was kind of an interesting choice of words because, number one, I think it's true that sort of, uh, you know, for lack of another contender, it does seem like Rory McDonald has earned the right to fight the winner of the Johnny Hendricks-Robbie Lawler fight coming up at, what, UFC 181, I think? Yes. Uh Early December in Vegas. Nice. The wife. Let's not do that. Let's not start referring to <laughs> oh, Vegas we as have the wife. so much fun here. <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, but, uh, you know, the phrasing going to be hard to deny Rory McDonald his yeah. title shot, I think, kind of implies one of the truths about Rory McDonald. And that is that a lot of fans may may not like totally embrace him with wide open arms as the champion or number one contender they're just going to kind of uh tacitly accept him yeah there's no way around it i mean that's kind of that was kind of the theme of the column that i wrote afterwards because he said in the press conference where he was saying you know i think that this should get me a title shot and his quote was or, you know, something along the lines of, I really don't see anybody else. And it's true, you kind of look around at the welterweight ranks and you're like, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess it's kind of you by default, buddy. Like, you know, you beat Tyron Woodley. Uh, these, you know, guys like Carlos Condit are hurt kind of out of the picture. The other guys are kind of far down the rankings or have other fights booked. So, yeah, I mean, I guess for right now it looks like it's you. But that's not really how you want to be, right? Like, you want to be the guy where everybody is saying, like, give this man a title shot. This is the guy. We want to see this guy fight for the belt next. And I'm sure there are some people out there who feel that way about uh, Rory Mack. But... I don't think there's a whole whole lot of them. It, it kind of just seems like, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to do this Roy McDonald title fight business unless something crazy happens. And who knows? I mean, there's still a lot of time. Like, there's still a couple months before Hendricks and Lawler do it again, brother. Um, if Lawler wins that, then I guess we could always see another doing it again again, brother. Um, or Johnny Hendricks could win and then be hurt for like nine months again. Who knows? Uh, so... A lot can still happen, but yeah, it does kind of seem like it's this resigned inevitability rather than a genuine fiery passion to see Roy McDonald fight for the belt. And I would have to think that that's mostly a personality issue, it has right? Because he's a good fighter. He he's is. really good. He is, and he, you know, when he's on like he was against Tarek Safadine, uh, he's on. Like, he looks really good. Um, I guess you could, the one thing you could say about his style uh, is that this stoppage over uh, Safadine was his first stoppage since he beat Shea Mills back in April of 2012. I still don't know that he has stopped an A-list welterweight. But again, I don't know that that really uh, is much of a hindrance. I would probably kind of argue that it's not. And, and I think that the thing that we're looking at here is, like I said, a personality issue. And that seems, you know honest and what's actually going on here, but also like a little unfair, like, uh, you know, Rory McDonald, he, he looks apart. He goes out of his way to challenge Conor McGregor and Anthony Pettis as, as the UFC's leading clothes horse. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's, but it's just kind of like a, a personality thing. He's not going to give you a lot in an interview setting. No, uh, brutal. And, and, uh, you know, lots of people make fun of him kind of for seeming like a serial killer for, Creepy. You know, he lack seems of a creepy. better word. Dude, did you see him? That seems sad and like unfair, doesn't it? Well, did you see him before the fight? Like when when they're standing in the cage before the fight, doing the introductions, and they're doing kind of the close up camera zoom in to each corner. And usually that's when the guy's pacing around, you know, banging his fists together, doing that kind of stuff, bouncing up and down, getting ready to go. And he's standing there, completely completely motionless, just kind of staring off into the distance, mouth slightly agape. Uh, it's just weird. And yeah, but that approach always worked for Fedor, right? Like that was kind of his thing was, was, uh, uh, f you know, flat expressioned Russian soul eater that's to true. just go out there and kind of like absent mindedly touch his face and I... then, then touch your face with his fist 8,000 times in the first minute of the fight. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was different. Fedor seemed more lovable somehow with his, well, he, did, he did seem a lot more like a big teddy bear. Yeah. He sure. seemed like less like. Um, you know, I might want to wear your skin and more like I'm kind of embarrassed by this attention that you've heaped on me. Uh, I don't know. I mean, 
it's true that like in a lot of ways it seems not really fair to him, but it also does it gets constantly reinforced when you see him. And even after he goes out there and he knocks out Tarek Safadine, and there's this weird moment where he's standing over the guy yelling after he's just knocked him out. It has a weird kind of little like you know, gorilla chest thump, yep. kind of, and it then... It was awkward. Yeah, it was awkward, But man. I would argue maybe better than nothing, right? Yeah, like, I that's mean, one of the first... He did a lot. Rory McDonald went out of his way to try to make it seem like he didn't care that Tarek Safadine had called him out specifically for this fight. And then after he knocked him out, I think, uh, you know, that facade kind of fell away, and you could tell, oh, wait, he actually was a little bit pissed off by that, and now he's there's a sort of outpouring of emotion. And it was awkward, but at the same time, it was almost like, oh, okay... Like Rory McDonald experiencing human emotions. Like <laughs> yes. that's, I'm going to say that's a positive. Yeah, it is. I guess I wonder, he must be aware of the fan perception of him as like an overgrown, disturbed child, right? Like yeah. he, he must be aware of that. And I wonder uh, what exactly he thinks his role in that is. Like if he thinks that he's feeding into it, if he thinks it's just like an annoying thing that's going to keep happening, if he thinks of himself completely differently than we think of him. Because uh, I don't know. I can't decide what if the best thing for him to do would be to just say, fuck it and go with it at this point. Uh, that, you know, we all basically think you're uh, the American psycho dude, except Canadian, uh, which is somehow creepier. Or if, you know, he should try for some kind of like image rebranding, which usually with MMA fans doesn't really work. Usually when they make up their mind about you, it's kind of fixed. I mean, unless, I mean, you can fuck it up yeah. if they think something good about you, but it's really tough. Like when they have kind of pegged you, uh, to go out of that box and be something completely different. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything he can do about it at this point, especially not when you consider what his alternative is. And I think that would be when they did the one, uh, smile countdown show about him remember the countdown show where they went to his house and he was there was just like making coffee and making breakfast and stuff yeah, but like sipping white wine with his girlfriend this this was a while ago this wasn't this was like two or three fights ago uh they showed him like dressed as you would normally see rory mcdonald dressed in like a gingham shirt buttoned all the way up with his glasses and he and his girlfriend are kind of like toasting with white wine and it was just like well if that is the rory mcdonald you're gonna get if you're not going to get the Dexter Rory McDonald, like I think for his sake, he would be better off going full Dexter, right? Yeah. But I could understand if a guy was like, well, Hey, this is actually my life and not just like a character I'm creating right, for pro yeah. wrestling. Maybe I don't want to be known as the super creepy, probably murderer guy. Uh, I want to be respected as an athlete and all that kind of stuff. I don't well, know. But he is a professional fighter. Like, you could do right. a lot worse than having your <laughs> reputation be, he seems like he kills people, right? <laughs> that, that's true. That is a very, very valid point. I mean, I guess a lot is going to depend, though, ultimately. You know, if he gets in there, say, you know, let's say for the sake of argument, Johnny Hendricks defends his title in the rematch with Robbie Lawler, and the UFC says, all right, Roy McDonald, you're up next, buddy. Uh, and Johnny Hendricks can do it in a reasonable amount of time. You know, say in the spring, he ends up fighting Johnny Hendricks. I mean, if he becomes champion, if he beats the best dude in the world, do we then look at all this stuff a little differently? Then is it is it somehow cooler, or are we or more on board with it if it turns out that he is not just like a really good fighter who is also super creepy and awkward, um, but turns out to be the best fighter who is super creepy and awkward. Well, I think he has two things going for himself in that regard. And the first one we already talked about, and that's that he does seem to have a chance still at 25 years old to be amazing at fighting. Because when he is on and he's got this diverse skill set, uh, and he's got this sort of awkward, uh, striking style that, that kind of seems to shut down his opponent's offense. But then at least against Tarek Safadine in this fight, like when he had Safadine in a position that he considered vulnerable, he like unleashed this, uh, what appeared to be sort of effortless power, uh, which I thought was one of the most impressive things about him. So I think like he does have a chance to be like, uh, an amazing figure in terms of, of his athletic ability. The other thing that I think he's got going for him is that he's Canadian. So he has this, uh, assumedly willing and 
a possibly large fan base that could rally around him. And after he beat Safadine in the cage, like he was showered with applause, albeit kind of late night polite applause from the fans there in Halifax. But yeah, well, like, it was like 3 a.m. in Halifax. Right, or yeah. They, they had kind of settled down in, into a, a stupor of it being so early in the morning. But like they they were definitely willing and, and able to get up off their seats and cheer this guy. So I think those two things uh, he's got going for himself – uh, is he going to turn out to be George St. Pierre? No, I don't think so. He doesn't have the kind of like innate charisma and like effortless charm that George St. Pierre has, but like, eh, I could see him doing okay. Like he, you know, Canadian fans will embrace him and he has a chance to be very good in the cage. So, uh, the, you know, the news isn't all bad, I no. suppose. Do we, you, we mentioned how late it was in Halifax by the time, uh, this one wrapped up. We want to mention before we move on here the weirdness that went on with the broadcast of this fight due to uh, extra innings playoff baseball because that that got messy. That's kind of unfortunate for the UFC. It did. We're running out of time a little bit, but all right, maybe uh, we can push it to the next round. All right. Well, Sir Nigel Longstock is here, and uh, he's going to come in and lead us in a in a game of Master Tweet Theater, which we haven't played for two weeks. So I know everyone's excited about it, and that's going to happen right now. And it's that time again. We welcome back to the show, friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am lightly perspiring. You call that lightly, huh? Oh, yes. By, um, by comparison with my usual output, this is in fact dehydrated. Wow. Well, that's uh, frightening for all of us to hear. Um, for those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel's going to read us off some tweets from some people in the MMA sphere. Chad and I are going to try and guess who the tweeters are. Uh, Sir Nigel, is there a theme to this week's? There certainly is, sir. Sir, the theme is, what is best in life? So is is this intentionally a Conan the Barbarian reference, uh, or is it that just a happy coincidence? Hmm, well, I suppose the only way to know would be to wait and see if some other Conan the Barbarian reference arises. Okay, well. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. For the first time in a long time. The bar has been set. When you're ready, hit us with the first one. <clears throat> yes, let's all finally feel something. Tweet the first. Jackson is loving some cars Disneyland thanks you. Is there any punctuation at all in that tweet? No, sir, there is not. <laughs> As a classically trained actor, I am often called upon to dramatize the complete absence of punctuation marks. Okay, well, Chad, I guess we're looking for who has a child named Jackson. I can tell you from some Wikipedia research uh, this weekend that it is not Josh Berkman, whose son is named Legend. Child's name is Legend Berkman, according to Wikipedia. Maybe after the movie. Yeah, let's hope. Uh, Who has a child named Jackson? Chad, you got any guesses here? No, I'm I'm trying to pull one out. Uh, I'm going to say Tito Ortiz. I don't know, Jackson Ortiz? Huh. That is an amazing name, sir. That is. That is not bad. Uh, as long as you're going Tito Ortiz, does Stefan Bonner have any kids? Fuck it, I'll say Stefan Bonner. Both fine guesses, both grounded in speculation on other men's children, and both wrong. It is Roy Nelson. Roy Nelson has a child? Yes, Jackson. J-A-X-S-O-N. Seriously? Jackson. I mean, or he took another child to Disneyland. I don't know. That's possible. When the tweet was first read, I thought maybe they meant Greg Jackson. Oh, he, I bet he loves that shit, too. Yeah. He does love cars. <laughs> hmm. Tweet the second. Hashtag fuck hashtags. Hashtag nuff said. It is better to live one day as a lion than to live a thousand days as lamb. Oh, that's all one tweet? All one tweet. The second component of which is saying nuff said, <laughs> which is short. <laughs> For enough said, you don't keep saying after that. There's a lot packed in there. Yeah. Uh, you know what? This this feels like the poet Philip Baroni to me. That that is what I was gonna say too. That has a it's a very Philip Baroni uh, cadence to it. I guess yeah. it hits a lot of the the trademarks we've come to know. I'm, that's my guess. 
Are, are we both? And then this rule has always been unclear to me. Are we both allowed to say the poet Philip? Why are we acting like there are any rules to this at all? Okay. Uh, like I'm, I'm going to say Cody McKenzie. Okay, fine. Uh, well, you could both most certainly have guessed the same thing because all of that shit is wrong. Oh. <laughs> it is Matt the Immortal Brown. Oh. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense, I think. Man, could we be poised for Matt Brown to become the new poet Philip Baroni? Because that would be awesome. Matt Brown also sometimes known for continuing to talk when enough said maybe should have ended it. You're talking about right. some real man shit? Yes, just getting down on some real man shit. Okay, I feel you. Hmm. Tweet the third. <clears throat> this tweet is accompanied by a photograph. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Always works well over the radio. Very well. We can all visualize it together. Hmm. Tweet the third. At Gitmo, Medal of Honor recipient Alan James Lynch. Stud. And there's a photo of... A photo of the tweeter in question with a 137-year-old man. Okay, well, this has got to be either Randy Couture or Rich Franklin, right? Or... Well, Brian Stan had to work this weekend, huh? Yeah, yes. He was, as far as we know, spoken for. Or maybe it was Tim Kennedy. You think he's out and about? Yeah, that's probably a good point. Which one did you say? Randy Couture or Rich Franklin? One of the two. I mean... You gotta guess. Well, I'm gonna go Randy Couture, I guess, then. Former Army guy, Randy Couture. Army veteran. Uh, I'm gonna go Tim Kennedy. I'm going with my gut here. Oh, okay. Both fine guesses. Both men affiliated with the U.S. military and both wrong. It is Rich Franklin. God damn it! <laughs> Math teacher. You should have listened to me, man. I know. God, that one, that, that's gonna stick with me. That is gonna burn. It reeked of Franklin. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. Blondie. She's still got it. One way or another, she's gonna get ya. Okay. Um, this feels like a Joe Benavidez to me. But I've, I've been wrong before. Well, that's a pretty good guess, considering we know that Joe Benavidez is a music fan. Uh, we heard about him getting that gift from Clay Guida before. That's, a, that's right, the most awesome gift, completely unsolicited and unexplained, that anybody's ever received. Uh, all right, you're gonna go... Joe Benavidez. I'm going to go Clay Guida. How about that? Okay. Both fine guesses, both grounded in solid deduction, both again wrong. It is Uriah Favor. Oh, okay. Monster Debbie Harry fan. I mean, I'm, I'm basically right there. It's a team alpha male guy. I'm, I'm going to call that one a victory for me. That's You can call it what you like, <laughs> sir, but history remembers differently. Tweet the fifth. You know who you are. Ha <laughs> ha, they are dogs, people. Just love them. <laughs> what the hell? What are you doing right now? Do you I'm, have a stroke? I am reading the tweet as written, sir. Do it again. You know who you are. <laughs> they are dogs, people. Just love them. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, boy. That's, I mean, oh. that is probably your finest performance as far as delivering tweets goes. I'm a trained thespian, sir. Chad, what do, you, what do you say here? Can we say the poet Philip Baroni twice? <laughs> Why not? Let's both say the poet Philip Baroni. Fuck it. Let's all keep saying it until it becomes true, but it is not now. That's oh. Quinton Jackson. Oh. Quinton Jackson fumbling away. I blame your naturalistic delivery, because that's there's no way that could possibly come off to anybody as if that's Rampage. It's true that I sounded more lucid than he ever has. <laughs> Well, that was a rousing rendition of Master Tweet Theater. So, Nigel, what do you got going on? Well, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished wrapping an exciting new project about a powerful warrior who wanders a Nietzschean fantasy world in pursuit of one thing, the leveraged buyout of the RJR Nabisco Corporation. I see. And what's it called? Conan the Barbarians at the Gate. And what role do you play? I play Subotai, a lawyer. <laughs> Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, earlier in the day on Saturday, this day of two UFC events, Rick Story went over there to Stockholm to fight a local favorite, Gunnar Nelson, coming down from Iceland, been embraced there by the fans in Sweden. 
And Rick's story did the damn thing. I mean, I guess we're, we're going to move on. We're going to talk about that. Before we do that, I mean, I guess we should talk a little bit about the, the nature of the day. Another one of yep. those UFC doubleheader kind of days. Uh, two cards, one on the internet, on the old fightpass.com. The other uh, on a variety of Fox Sports properties. Uh, and I guess this is one thing. This is another one of those instances where the internet fight card was by far the more entertaining fight card. Uh, the one on TV... And I don't know if this was just my impression of it because I had watched the Stockholm one live and then kind of watch, you know, had to do a bedtime routine with my daughter and then switched over and was watching the, uh, the Halifax one, uh, live uh, as it switched across various Fox channels. But that one really seemed to drag, yep. uh, in comparison to this one. I mean, and as we mentioned before, it also had a little problem with a, the longest, playoff baseball game in major league baseball history pushing it off of fox sports one um i don't know a part of me wonders if that was doing the ufc a favor because when it did switch from fox sports from when fox sports one switched its broadcast from baseball uh to the ufc it was just in time for the start of the rap rail sun sal brian caraway fight right. which is the only two things you care about is the co-main event and the main event on that one you didn't miss anything if you missed the first like four fights on that card yeah, um, and, and I think that, you know, I think that might be a valid point that, that it probably just ended up giving the UFC a hell of a lead in to its two, uh, only Except for relevant... all people had to go to a goddamn bed because <laughs> right, yeah. they couldn't stay up and watch that. Right, that, that's true. Like, and, uh, but it wasn't just you. I didn't watch the, the fight pass card as it happened, and I only tuned in for the main card broadcast of the fight night show on television. Uh, and I still thought it dragged, you know, and there's six fights on this main card, the first three or four of which, aren't giving you a lot in terms of, of relevance. And I think, you know, at least to my mind, one of the things that, that hurt the UFC in terms of getting bounced off Fox Sports 1, which is totally out of their control and something you can't, you know, you can't blame Fox for that. They paid a lot of money for baseball. The baseball playoffs on Fox Sports 1 are kind of a big deal for that network. Um, they got, you know, three, 3.5 million people watch that game or whatever. Uh, so you understand why Fox would, would stay there to, for, uh, to, for the entirety of Nats Giants, even though they figured out a way to squeeze it two entire baseball games into one baseball game. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, like the thing that struck me was that I was watching the baseball game during these first four fights on the UFC card uh, because it was relevant and I knew what the stakes were. And God damn it, it turned out to be historic because they played 18 innings. And I was really only switching back and forth back to the UFC fight card, frankly, out of guilt because <laughs> I was supposed to be watching the UFC, but I was actually watching baseball, which frankly turned out to be a hell of a lot better show. Okay. Uh, and that's what I was going to, cause you know, we mentioned this before and you would think on paper, right? Playoff baseball is a hell of a lead in. Like, is, especially yeah, if you're trying to nab. It's one of the best things on TV. That, that, that general sports fan demographic, the people who might know what, what the UFC is and they kind of know what MMA is. They don't really follow it super closely but hey it's playoff baseball time they're gonna watch it shit goes into extra innings it's exciting everybody's waiting for a walk-off home run or some shit they're, they're watching it and then boom it's over and you go right to the ufc like that could be a great rate lead-in but even if that had worked exactly like it was supposed to your lead-in is to what like you know mitch gagnon uh, choking out a cable guy like that's not you know you're not leading with your best stuff there the first four fights like we said uh, you know, just really forgettable stuff. And it takes a while. You have to know, like, okay, these are the fights that are coming up much later, uh, much later tonight. These are the fights that matter. Uh, and these, here's why they matter. Like, you have to already know that stuff in order to stick with the UFC broadcast through that point. Because it's not giving you a whole lot of reasons to. And this is another instance where if you look at that, that day's lineup across the two events, you have what could be one awesome fight night card. Like, if you take the top two fights from Halifax, the, the co-main and the main event, and you take the top two fights from Stockholm, which is Rick Story and Gunnar Nelson and Max Holloway and Akira Khorasani, you got four fights right there. If you want a fifth one, then by all means promote Dennis Seaver and Charles Rosa up from the prelims of Stockholm, because that was the best fight of the weekend by far. Then you have five awesome fights. Uh, that's the kind of thing. I mean, imagine if you, if you went from playoff baseball being your lead-in People tune right in, and the first fight they see, Dennis Seaver and Charles Rosa, three rounds trading submissions and kicking each other upside the head and in the liver and all kinds of crazy stuff. Those people are going to stick with you, and they might even watch an ad for UFC 179, who knows, and maybe buy a pay-per-view. I mean, it seems like this strategy of, hey, we're going to, this global domination thing, we're all over the place, having a bunch of events, trying to get people into it, trying to create new fans, 
if you're not leading with this, like the stuff that fans like are created by, then it seems counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, we're left to assume <laughs> that they're making a bunch of money. Okay, doing it, so Great. it's kind of like Thursday night football. You know, sucks. Uh, Except Thursday night football is not like you know. It's not like the okay the practice squad from the Rams is going to play the practice squad right. from the Ravens. But the Thursday night football with the NFL, you have a short week to prepare. They're always the sloppiest games of the week. Players hate it. It's unsafe. Fans get a a, a lesser product because the teams aren't as well prepared. But the league makes a hundred million dollars a year. So there you go. Thursday night football. As long as uh you know Ben Folks is going to order his fight pass every month. Um, oh, it's on me. It's yeah, on me, huh? That's what I'm saying. Okay, well, let's talk about Rick Story going out there and upsetting Gunnar Nelson. Really kind of a surprising performance from Rick Story. Uh, sort of. Sort of. Yeah. You know, I if you had asked me, you know, how is Rick Story going to beat Gunnar Nelson, I guess I would have told you uh, messy. You know, yeah. get staying in his face in the clinch against the fence a lot, grinding him down, avoiding the ground game with him. I would not have said he's going to stand there at a distance and just basically outhook the guy a lot of the time. Uh, I mean, it seems like Rick Story has really gotten a lot better since he went down to the MMA lab. Yeah, and Rick Story is always a guy who's been pretty good. He's, you know, I think that, that this is what they said on the broadcast. They called him the bulldog of the welterweight division. I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, to me, though, this is a fight that just like reinforces the idea about MMA that there's just so many ways it can go bad for you, man. And, and, you know, we have these guys like Gunnar Nelson, a teammate of Conor McGregor, by the way, uh, a guy who had been out to a, uh, 4-0 start in the UFC was 13-0 and in his career. And like, you know, for a guy who was sort of an exclusively international, like fight pass product, there was a fair amount of hype surrounding him. And then we're just reminded, like, sometimes you're going to run up against a wily veteran who is going to get in your face and have this like weird, uh, striking style that's going to kind of befuddle you. He's going to drag you into deep water. You're going to come out with your weird karate stance and he's going to kick you in your front leg a million times. Uh, and you're going to fade down the stretch and you're going to lose, which I think is, 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 you know, like I said, goes to show how many ways this sport can go bad and it's kind of a cautionary tale as far as I'm concerned, even though I know we're just going to keep taking these guys that we don't know that much about and being like, wow, this guy's the next big thing. Well, I could see why people got excited about Gunnar Nelson, although when you look at this in retrospect and, you know, hindsight 2020 and all that, it does seem like you can kind of piece together, oh yeah, Rick Story is in a lot of ways a nightmare matchup for Gunnar Nelson because you're probably not going to be able to take him down if you want to force it into a jiu-jitsu match. Uh, and if you can't beat him with your weird, weird karate style on the feet, um, if he can kind of get his offense going and keep you in a reactive mode, you could be in a lot of trouble. And I, I think that what we saw from Gunnar Nelson is the same thing we've seen flashes of in his other fights, uh, even you know ones that he won, where what seemed to be missing was a real urgency. Like, and that works for him at times, that kind of karate guy patience that he seems to have, that sort of Leoto Machida-esque thing of like, he's going to frustrate you and eventually get you to move right into one of his punches. Uh, and it's beautiful when it works. And other times though, when you get a guy like Rick Story who can eat that when he has to and keep coming back and, and, and hit you twice for every time you land that punch, it looks bad for the judges. And if you don't have that ability to kick it into the next gear and really say, okay, I'm losing. I got to go after this guy. Uh, then, you know, that's how you end up losing a decision. And this was one where it seemed like his corner was telling him, like, hey, you're winning. I think you're doing all right. Like, you watch how he fights in the fifth round. He fights like a guy who thinks he's kind of got this and needs to not fuck up, which is kind of surprising. Very surprising. I mean, I, although I guess he did take one of the scorecards. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> take that for what it's worth. And, and you know, Gunnar Nelson is, is, what, 25, 26 years old. He's still a young guy. Uh, my, my gut reaction is that he's probably going to learn a lot from this. Uh, and he probably will go on to be one of the better fighters in that welterweight division in the next few years. Uh, but I think, you know, maybe we forget a little bit about Rick Story. He is himself only 30 years old and, and is a guy who doesn't seem like he's going to be the champion, but at the same time, uh, is a dude who is very capable. And if he gets, uh, into his game, if he's able to get into his bag of tricks out there, like he can cause trouble for a lot of different guys. Um, and I, you know, I think that that's probably the, the main thing that we learned from this, this fight over the weekend. Dude beat Johnny Hendricks. Yes, he, he did. Always got that feather yes, in his cap. I was a little, well, I don't want to say surprised, but man, as I watched this thing, 
this European broadcast team seemed pretty in the bag for Gunnar Nelson, uh, which kind of surprised me from Dan Hardy because he's a guy, you know, when you talk to him as a fighter, super smart, super personable, super likable. Uh, but it just didn't seem like they weren't, it just seemed like they weren't trying to hear it from, from the Rick Story side of things. That could be. I think, you know, for some, at least for Dan Hardy, uh, you know, the broadcasting is a relatively new thing to him. I think that, uh, you know, you got to give him a chance to kind of grow and mature in that role. Uh, but I did get that impression as well. That, that was kind of strange because sometimes, you know, you feel like, Hey, did you guys notice that Rick Story just landed a pretty good punch there? Cause it seems like you only want to mention it when Gunner does it. All right. Well, let's do, uh, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number three. Ben, I know you've probably seen the videos on the internet, uh, that UFC fighter Cody Gibson went out and lost his UFC 178 match against Manny Gamburian. And that night, went out to the bars and got himself into another fight uh, with a rando out on the streets, well, in a bar room, uh, and uh, fired off what I think is probably going to be a sweet catchphrase for a lot of people moving forward in our sport. Google me, bitch. <laughs> That's awesome. And then got in this tussle where uh, the other guy probably honestly was saved by the bouncers, but at the same time, I'm not sure Cody Gibson looked like a great UFC fighter. In this scuffle, he got in the barroom. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Well, Chad, you know, I got to give my are you fucking kidding me to another Cody, Cody McKenzie, who, uh, as you know, was in that Battlegrounds one-night welterweight tournament. Again, that is a welterweight tournament that former UFC featherweight Cody McKenzie was fighting in. Right. Word had it that he drained a pint of blood to make weight for this welterweight tournament. I'm into it. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Are you fucking what kidding he, me? Here's what I want to know. What did he do with the blood, do you think? Do you think that... Well, that, he's going to save it for his next fight and then put it back in his body, right? <laughs> Isn't that how that works? Is that considered blood doping? I think that's how it works, man. I think that's what you do. I'm uh, really concerned about Cody McKenzie and his crew taking some, you know, just medical practices into their own hands in some hotel room in Oklahoma. I see a lot of ways that could go wrong. That's such a Spokane thing to do. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, this one looks bad for Kung Lee because he tested positive for elevated levels of human growth hormone in the wake of his recent loss to Michael Bisping. Uh, and then at a couple of, you know, weeks to months ago had the situation where there was a photo of him posted online. Just great lighting. Awesome lighting on that photo. Where it looked like his head had been photoshopped onto the body of a professional bodybuilder. Uh, he said it was the lighting. He said he had just finished his workout. He said it was, it was the, you know, the perfect storm of factors working against Kung Lee. And then to have him go out and test positive for performance enhancing drugs certainly didn't come as a surprise to anyone apparently not named Kung Lee. Uh, but there are some ins and outs now to this story. Uh, Kung Lee has come out and, and I guess kind of shoveled as many uh, I don't want to say excuses, but like tried to essentially taken a shotgun approach to trying to explain yeah. away this failed, a lot of holes. failed this drug test, uh, said something about a sauna. And now more recently, he has taken the UFC to task for what he says uh, are, you know, incorrect drug testing policies. Uh, his former business partner, Victor Conti, former uh, trainer, I guess. Uh, a guy who was, uh, has a long history with steroids and has kind of fashioned himself into an anti-PEDs crusader in most recent years has come to his defense, also blasting the UFC's uh, testing policies. Uh, the UFC, though, uh, is standing by its results. This is a weird situation, man, and it's one of those things where so many guys have tested positive in this sport and so many guys have come up with lame excuses for why they tested positive, that you can't really believe any of them when they come out with these explanations. Especially but, if you looked like that pre -fight. Especially if you looked like that in, in your photos before the fight. At the age of 42. At the age of 42. Uh, but this also, I think, uh, like kind of illustrates the problems with the current testing policies, right? Okay, here's, here's a, uh, 
sample or a, a part of the, the an excerpt from the statement that uh, Kung Lee's manager Gary Ibarra released. Uh, this is on MMA Junkie, uh, where he is explaining his objections to the test. His objections seem a little more cogent than Kung Lee's, who just seemed like, I don't know, maybe I have a medical problem. Maybe the tests are screwed up. Uh, but here's one that I found interesting. Quote, the blood sample was collected post-fight when the natural HGH levels are the least reliable as the body in an attempt to heal itself will naturally release more HGH. But even more of a concern is that the more reliable and water-required test, that's the World Anti-Doping Agency, for HGH known as the IGF-1 test was never conducted on the sample. When we, conduct, when we contacted the UFC to request that this more reliable test be conducted, we were informed that this was not possible as a lab only retained the sample for a week following the fight. Water regulations require that samples are to be frozen and held for 10 years so that they may be retested in the event of a challenge. Water rules state that when testing for HGH, the lab must use the isoform differential immunosis, nailed it, or the isoforms test, a procedure which requires the, uh, yeah, okay. Um, this, I think, like, even if we don't believe Kung Lee, right? Even if we think that Kung Lee is totally guilty based on the combination of uh, what we're told is a positive test and the fact that he looked like a dude who was probably positive for some stuff. Uh, this is kind of concerning because if you're saying like they didn't do the tests that they're supposed to do um, to find this thing that they said they found and then they destroyed the sample, like they don't even have the sample to keep doing the test on when you challenge them, it kind of makes it seem like the UFC's word is law and fighters just have to kind of shut up and take it. Like, there there doesn't seem to be anything that we've seen or heard about, and I've asked people, UFC representatives and have not heard anything back yet about what is the actual appeals process. Like, if the UFC says, we found something in your blood test, boom, you're positive, they put it out in the media and tell everybody that you're suspended, and you're adamant, you're absolutely sure that you did not take any banned substances, what can you do? Like, do you have any recourse at all, or do you just have to shut up and take it? Yeah, and I think like you said, we probably think Kung Lee did this, that he's probably guilty here. They're just because that's what we've been uh, trained to think uh, out of all these stories. But it, it brings up some like interesting things about the UFC's drug testing policy. The Lorenzo Fertitta has been talking to the media for a few weeks now, and, and Mark Ratner has been out talking to the media about how they're going to increase their, their you know uh, drug testing policy. They're going to strengthen it. Uh, I think starting at the beginning of 2015 and even this year we've seen, uh, increased testing and, and more random testing and stuff like that. Uh, but they've been really, uh, short on the details so far. So it's hard to know exactly what we're all getting into here. And I think that the, this Kung Lee situation brings up a lot of the dangers of trying to do the testing in a way that doesn't seem quite as transparent as it should be. I mean, I think if we want to eliminate, uh, you know, gray areas and these kind of situations, then the UFC has to sign up with a, a well-known and respected independent drug testing agency, because right now we don't really know what they're doing. And uh, I think that that is, is uh, you know, a system that isn't quite as trustworthy as it could be. And frankly, for the fight company, it seems like a better idea for them to go with an independent testing agency to avoid situations like this Kung Lee one, where, you know, if the UFC had just gone with a with an independent agency that adhered to the WADA standard, then I don't think you'd be having these problems right now. But instead... Or if you did have the problems, you could dump it on that agency. Say they screwed up. Right. So, it, you know... uh I think that I understand the rationale behind trying to keep all of this stuff in house. Um, I don't know that any of that is positive, but I also think that ultimately for the fight company, regardless of the cost or regardless of, of, you know, having to make information public, et cetera, et cetera, they would be better off to farm this testing out to somebody else. Yeah. And I think it would just, it makes sense that that's, you know, and this is something that Mark Ratner himself has said. I remember when we were talking about the first time that the UFC went to Stockholm, I remember talking to him about, uh, the UFC's support of the International MMA Federation. Uh, which was linked to the, the Swedish MMA Federation. You know, the Swedes love federations, love, love regulatory bodies. And they were really trying to get that, the IMMAF thing going. And one of Mark Ratner's points for why the UFC should support it was that the promoter cannot be the regulator. Like you can't have, you know, the fox watching the hen house there for obvious reasons. 
Uh, and But it seems like in practice, the UFC has kind of said, no, nah, we think we can handle it. And you, you look at the actual performance of some state athletic commissions and you could see why they might feel that way. Right. Like we don't see a bunch of great stuff coming out of those athletic commissions. And when we do see the appeals process played out in front of state athletic commissions, usually it's a thing of the guy going and saying – I didn't take anything or maybe it was this supplement or whatever. And, you know, you don't find too many times where the state athletic commission says, um, you know what? You're right. We screwed up all penalties aside. They used to do the thing. Remember, it used to be where like, you could appeal it and it would usually get your suspension chops from a year to six months or something if you could poke some kind of reasonable hole in it. And that was kind of the thing where they would say, all right, we cool. Can we compromise on this? Now they, they seem to do that a lot less. But at least then it's out in the open. It's transparent. There's a process that everybody knows. Here's what you do if you don't like what happened with the testing. Uh, and we all get to kind of see it play out. I mean, the UFC will put that shit on Fight Pass for you so you can watch it. How come it does not hold itself to the same standards? If it is going to be the regulator, if it is going to act like it's the same as the athletic commissions, you know, shouldn't there be an appeals process uh, where the UFC has to have its own regulators sit there on fight pass and talk to the fighters and, and, and go through this stuff? I mean, it's, that seems only logical. You can't hold yourself to a different standard, can you? Yeah, no, I don't think you can. And it seems like a double-edged sword in terms of the UFC acting as its own regulator when it goes into these international markets, because on one hand, it's good that they do that. It's good that there's some regulation. Right. It's good that it's not just the Wild West out there where anything goes. Uh, and I think that you have to like kind of give them credit for that. Absolutely. Uh, especially since there's never really been an organization exactly like the UFC uh, maybe in all of fight sports, but certainly in mixed martial arts, just because of its uh, strong centralized power and that it's essentially, you know, its brand is regarded by a lot of people as like the name of the sport that it promotes. So like we, you know, it's the most powerful thing going in this sport. And if it wants to do, you know, world fucking domination or whatever it calls it, uh, then it, 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 I think it's good that, that it takes steps to at least try to uh, police the fighters and, and, and do this independent drug testing when they go overseas and stuff like that. But at the same time, man, like I said, double edged sword, like if you're going to hold yourself to that, to this very, these various standards, like I think it, it is only fair to have an independent agency come in and do, do the testing and, and, you know, take it off your hands because I feel like it saves you a headache at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, and it seems like, you know, we do have to give the USC credit for trying to do the right things. They're trying to do more drug testing and trying to, you know, make sure that when they do go to these other places that they're doing the testing and actually telling us about it. I mean, like the, the Bigfoot Silva Mark Hunt case was a good example of, you know, they had this awesome fight and I'm sure the temptation on some level must have been there when you found out that Bigfoot Silva failed that test to be like, what if we just didn't tell anybody? It's just, we did the testing ourselves. We could kind of keep it quiet and then we don't have to ruin the, the memory of this awesome fight but they didn't do that you know so we have no reason to think that they're actively screwing up anything or doing anything wrong there but at the same time like you're going to run into this kind of stuff again if you are the only one in charge of it and if no one can look at your process and question it and, and tell if you made any mistakes i mean this is going to happen again it's only a matter of time if something bad happens that way you yeah. think like you said you'd just be it would be better for the ufc to get rid of that headache by giving it to somebody else yeah when we hadn't had any reason to question anything that they were doing or or a reason to suspect that anything was going wrong until kung lee levels these accusations which like we've said, you got to take with a grain of salt because it seemed like the dude just tested positive for HGH. But at the same time, Kung Lee is kind of a weird dude to like level these like kind of serious and sweeping accusations at the fight company. Like he's always been uh, a really level headed, really nice guy who frankly seemed like kind of a company man, really. Uh, and, and, you know, he's getting handed this suspension that I don't think necessarily really affects him that much because the dude was almost retired as it were and kind of came back to have this fight against Michael Bisping. You can just look at, at, you know, how frequently he fights and, and look at his now year long suspension and just kind of see that, that like, ah, that's probably good. Yeah. I don't, yeah, you know, it's either that this is either the end of his career or like, yeah, he's probably not even going to try to fight in the next year anyway. So I don't know how much it, it affects him. So Kung Lee bringing up these, these accusations and questions, uh, kind of gives a reason to have some pause here and then, and to wonder what's going on. Uh, but I, I assume we haven't heard the last or maybe we have. I don't know. We'll, We'll just have to wait and see what happens. I guess we will. Let's do just saying stuff, and then uh, then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? 
Well, Chad, uh, for my Just Saying stuff, I want to go back a little bit, back to UFC 178. This was something that stuck with me. Uh, I kind of noticed it on watching the weigh-in show on Fox Sports 2 uh, in the standard D. And they had Chris Weidman, UFC middleweight champ Chris Weidman up there doing, you know, the analyst thing. And they were talking about the main event, the nominal main event between Demetrius Johnson and Chris Cariasso for the UFC flyweight title. And Chris Weidman made the comment about Chris Cariasso that although the odds were against him, you know, if he put the work in and if he believes in himself, he'll get the W. Which, I'm just saying, Chris, that's probably how it works for you, big guy. <laughs> but it's not how it works for absolutely everybody. Just uh, saying. Wow. So it's kind of a George St. Pierre style. Well, everyone should just be more like me. Yeah. Kind of approach. Step one, be super good. Step two, work hard. Yeah. Well, Ben, this week I'm just saying uh, my colleague Jonathan Snowden at Bleacher Report sent out a tweet earlier this week uh, kind of asking why the UFC wouldn't just give its fighters a small uh, stipend monthly training and, and living expenses stipend uh, so that they could all function as as professional fighters rather than uh, – you know, being a cable guy six days a week and then coming in to try to fight in the largest, most successful, highest level mixed martial arts federation. Say, in the for world. example, just just out of the blue. And I, I got thinking about that and I started to think about these performance of the night bonuses that, that we give out after every event. OK, uh, the UFC gives out four of those things, two to the people in the fight of the night and then two generally for performances of the night. That's right. Uh, they're worth fifty thousand dollars a piece. So okay. the UFC Carry gives out one two hundred thousand dollars in post fight bonuses. Every event, right? All right. Sounds good. I'm with you so far. The UFC is on pace to do 46 events in 2014. So if you do a little math. I don't want to do that math. But the $200,000 it pays out for every show times 46 shows, uh-huh. $9.2 million. Ooh. That's a lot of money, right? Yeah. Now, here's the thing, Ben. What if instead of giving out $200,000 in post-fight bonuses for every every show, we took that $9.2 million and split it up amongst all of the fighters in the UFC. Okay. They have like, you know, 250, 200, or I mean, 450, 475 fighters under contract, right? Somewhere in the neighborhood, somewhere like 500. Uh, turns out you could give every fighter somewhere in the neighborhood of between $1,500 and $2,000 a month. In, in other words, you could establish a base pay scale of about $24,000 a year for all fighters and then say, hey, man, if you make your fight, you get more money. And if you win your fight, you get more money. All of this, mind you, without spending any more money than they already do. I see what you did. I think that that might change the lives of a lot of guys in the UFC. I'm just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to, oh, shit, there's no show next week. What are we going to do? Let's talk about some Bellator. Oh, man, really? Okay. Maybe we should do all questions considered. Maybe we should. Maybe we should do that. Maybe uh, we will. Stay tuned, kids. We'll put it out on Twitter if we decide to do all questions considered. Uh, so send us your questions. Or we could just do movie reviews. Yeah, we'll just, we could just talk about Just go to the red box and we'll just whatever there's there. <laughs> As for right now, though, we're done. We are through. We are out. We could, you know, maybe get into some of our other interests next week's podcast. Do you ever notice that when you go to, like, some red boxes, like, say, the red box at Walmart, for example, 